0: All right, Father, I thank you for granting us another morning uh, to spend time encouraging uh, one another. Uh, thank you for your word that you've given us instruction on uh, how your church is to operate and that it is ultimately for your glory. I ask you would allow this time together to be very fruitful uh, and that we would all have uh, higher thoughts of your character and your word. In your name, Amen. noticed that we have been thoroughly blessed, there is something to believe, Uh, something that is true, even when it doesn't feel like it to us. You know, there's lots of things that are true and it doesn't feel like it, so that shouldn't surprise us. Um... And it is a challenge of life in general to try to believe what is true, (laughs) first of all, even to find out what is true, and then to believe what is true, and then to trust what is true so that you live according to what is true. That is a big challenge, that's hard, Uh, because... I guess at the bottom line, we're not that good at knowing what's true and seeing things seem to be the case when they are not. And we have broken motives. And so we often read things onto what we see in a way that suits our impulses and our uh, broken desires. So we can blame something, someone for something they are not to blame for. In fact, we are good at doing that when we're the ones that are to blame. We shift, we scurry So it's always been a challenge to find and trust and act in truth. It's been a challenge since the day Adam lost track of the truth. And acted otherwise. You might notice if you read the story of Adam that... As soon as he turned away from God, he turned away from everything else too. He suddenly didn't trust the wife that he said a few days ago, oh, that's what we're talking about. Their relationship broke down immediately as soon as he lost track of God and ever since then we've had this problem how do I know trust act truthfully (laughs) it's a big challenge in fact in the world today we've gotten so good at not operating in the truth that we've come to the point of denying that there is any such thing well we sort of read about this in Ephesians chapter 2. And this morning, what I'm hoping to show is what Ephesians 2 teaches, which is that Christ, God in Christ, has begun the project of restoring our humanity and he is making a new humanity and uh, yeah he we read in Ephesians chapter 2 most of us are very familiar with some key verses in Ephesians chapter 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of God lest any man, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we think we use this verse quite truthfully to share with someone that to receive salvation is simply to trust in it and that there's nothing else to do to be saved. So we frequently apply this text to talk to individuals about how they're saved and what we're going to find out this morning is, it's not just about how God makes, made me a Christian and made you a Christian. It is about that, but when he was doing that, he was doing something else as well, which is he was making us a Christian. One. And uh, it's bigger than just each of us. Um, well, so with that kind of as an introduction, let's, let's get started. We noticed yesterday at the end of chapter 1 that uh, God gave Christ the risen and seated Lord Christ as head over all things to the church. and then he gave this crazy description of the church the fullness of him who fills all in all now I should tell you there's a lot of detailed exegetical arguments about those two phrases the fullness of him who fills all in all and I can see why because the church is the fullness of Christ or God Well, that's one of the first exegetical discussions. Who's him? Christ? God? Hmm. Uh. (laughs) And then we figure out who fills all? Who's all? What's all? In all? What's that all? Yeah, there's too many pronouns. So when there's a collection of pronouns in the text of the Bible, it generates a lot of exegetical discussion. We don't really need to concern ourselves too much about that because... We're not doing a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Ephesians. We're doing a flyover. So what we notice here, though, is the church is, we're told in that verse that the church is the fullness of God or Christ. I say Christ. Well, but that's the same, isn't it? Because in Christ is the fullness of God. And we're going to come back to the fullness of God later on at the end of chapter 3. Well, so God gave Christ to the church, the fullness of him, and then he goes, and it's like he's saying, oh, and don't forget, you were dead. That's the opening of chapter 2. You were dead. The trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. So you were dead like everyone else well that doesn't sound like good news although it does say you were dead so that sounds good but verse 4 begins it's a very important word but you were dead but God made us that's important us you notice he shifted from the sorry the second person to the first person you were dead God made us alive I take that as a way of saying you have become us in being made alive there's a there's an us that's out of the you by being made alive well God made us alive together with Christ, why? The text addresses that question, why? So the book of Ephesians says God made us alive together with Christ because he liked the cut of our jib. Oh, and he appreciated some of our good deeds. He selected some of us because some of us appeared to be better advocates for his cause than others. That's kind of how we deal with it, because, you know, every time some famous person comes to Christ, we go, oh, good for God. (laughs) That guy, man, he's going to make a real impact for God, because he's so famous, as though God chose him because of his fame. In fact, most of those cases, the pressure is so intense it, it, it's very difficult for a a famous person to stick with Christ effectively because everyone has such ridiculous expectations of famous people. Well, that's not what the text says, is it? Why did God make us alive again in Christ? Not not because of anything about us. We are not even mentioned in the reason because of, oh, I guess we are kind of mentioned, as the object, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy, that's the reason. God being rich in mercy made us alive. So that is something about the, just the nature of God himself. It, it's something he is in himself, whether there's anything else or not. Though I guess he has to have an object for his mercy. Hmm, maybe that's why he made us. Because he has a merciful character and he wanted to demonstrate it. So he made us alive being rich in mercy. Oh, and there's something for there's a reason for that. Because of the great love with which he loved us. God is love he made us alive because, as a way of expressing his loving nature that's not because we're so lovable we're dead remember dead in trespasses and sins behaving according to our base instincts impulses desires dead And even when we do good things, they're not really good. The scripture says that even when we obey the law, our righteous deeds are disgusting. You know, I spent a long time thinking about how that can be true. I mean, they're truly righteous deeds. When you tell the truth, that's righteous. Which we do accidentally do from time to time. When we tell the truth, that's righteous. When I don't steal, that's righteous. Okay? But even that is not righteous in God's consideration. How's that? Even when you do the right thing, it's not the right thing. Because all actual righteousness that actually is righteous is God's righteousness exercised in a person. So if I act independently to do the right thing, my independent action is unrighteous. So if I'm apart from Christ, no matter what I do, no matter how good it is, it's unrighteous. It is not, Paul says in Galatians No one can be justified by good deeds, by the works of the law, the actual law of God. In fact, the law never was intended for that. But, so he raised us up with him, again notice the use of the word us, and seated us with him in heaven in Christ. Now, these are aorist tense verbs. These are things that have happened. So when Christ was raised, so were you. So was I. So was every Christian that will ever be a Christian. Perhaps some not even born yet were raised when Christ was raised. Alright. And seated with him. So uh, you are seated with Christ now in the heavens. Wow. Now I admit it's difficult to imagine how that works. I don't know. And we're not told. But that's the facts. So here we're confronted with the truth to believe. and To act accordingly. Well, what was all this for? We, we went through this yesterday, you know, where we talked about what's the basis for God's blessing and what's the purpose of God's blessing. Well, the basis of God's blessing in this case is He's rich in mercy and He loved us. And the, what's the purpose of this blessing? To show the immeasurable wealth of His grace. Well, that's the same answer we got yesterday. To show... That his grace is unbounded. Now, as you can see here, there's there's no reward. His purpose was not to reward us, but to show his grace. And it's actually logically impossible to do both. He can either be showing his grace or rewarding us. If he's rewarding us, it is not grace, it's merit. And if it is grace, it can't be reward. The the two are incompatible. When we say it's grace, we mean it's not a reward. So he's showing the immeasurable, immeasurable wealth of his grace and then the next, te- the next verse, sorry, I had to tell my Bible app that I don't want to review it right now. Uh, the, uh, the next verse, for by grace you are saved, have been saved. Now this is an interesting expression for by grace you have been saved because it's actually got two verbs in it which is weird. It says for by grace you are present tense. You are and then there's a participle another kind of verb. Having been saved. Which is a perfect tense participle. Which perfect tense means uh, something that has happened in the past that permanently altered the situation. So the perfect tense, you have been. Except normally you could just say you have been. And that would do everything you need this to do that so you have been saved at some point in the past and so of course now you continue in that state. So a perfect tense verb looks like this, things are like this, and then the verb happens and then things are like this. Well, this says you are having been saved. That's really like redundant, like you don't need to do it that way. So why would he do it that way? Because he wants you to notice your current state. Saved. Having been saved. By grace. You are having been saved. We can't, say, we can't write Bible translations that put it that way, but that's a literal translation. You are having been saved. And then, it, you know we have the rest of uh, verse nine, I guess, eight and nine. "This is not from you." We translate it like this: "This is not from you. It is a gift of God." And it's more like this, "This is not from you, from God, the gift." which is kind of what he already said, and he's saying it again, and then he says it again when he says, not from works. It's not produced from you. It's a gift from God. It's not produced from you. So, no one can boast. So, no one can take any credit for it. Why? Why doesn't God do it this way instead of setting up some kind of system where, you know, he meets us halfway? Where we produce some righteous deeds that he recognizes and then he throws enough grace in to get us the rest of the way. Why why does he do this by grace alone thing? Well, that's true. He wants it done right. Yeah, okay, so, because that way wouldn't work. But the other thing is right here, it's because the goal here is to show off his grace. Not to get us saved. Now, us humans in the church, we, we're going around acting like the goal is to get people saved. But we talked about this last night as well. The goal is to get people saved in order to show off God's grace. So getting us saved is penultimate, we might say. It's a means to another end. All right, so then he says this, and this is where we start really having to deal with the fact that this is about the church, not just about each of us. For we are his workmanship. That's a fancy word for just saying thing made, created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, those the word that's under the word workmanship and the word that's under the word created, they're going to get some repetition in the book of Ephesians in interesting and important ways. So I just kind of made a note of them here in your notes and we'll, we'll circle back on that. But the, the workmanship, a the thing made. Now, this probably would remind us of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. <sighs> If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All right. Well, in in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's any man singular. He is singular. A new creation, singular. That's That's an application of the new creation to each individual Christian. Well, here's the way this one works. We, plural, are his workmanship, singular. He does not, this does not say we are his workmanships. Now this is how we typically apply this. I think I'm a project of God. He's making me, and according to Scripture, that certainly is true. But that's not what this is about. Because what this says is we are one work. One project, together. Of course, Paul's got something up his sleeve here. Which we're about to really get into, But the point here is, we collectively are the project of God as a single thing. Now, to make that project, he's making each of us as well. But each of us is a contribution to the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand. When did he do that? Well, sometime in the beginning. And if we read chapter 1, we'd probably guess it was before he started making anything. So, God prepared these good works for us to walk in. Now, I typically think that means God has a special plan for my life. Well, and he does, I guess. But what this says is he has a special plan for our life. And that... The good works that he's prepared for us to walk in are good works that we walk in. Suddenly I'm thinking of the scripture in uh, Philippians 1, I think, where we're described as striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, we are his workmanship. Now, the rest of chapter 2 goes into well, just how did this work, how was this work done? Because, you know, a work, the workmanship thing, is a thing made. Now, I tend to think of it as a a project in process, but I'm not sure that's right. Because all that he describes in the following text are things that have already been done to create this workmanship and at the end of chapter 2 this workmanship is a temple the dwelling place of God hmm okay well how did he do this I gotta find my place here in the text one second so he goes on in verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you were you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's another way of saying you were dead. But now, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. Now, the word peace, it's the Greek word for peace, it's the ordinary word for peace, but it's the Greek word that is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. You... He is our reconciler. He is our healer. All these ideas are wrapped up in the word peace. He makes us whole. There's a union in the word peace, a wholeness, integrity. Shalom is a big word. Well, He is our peace. Let's find out about that. Who has made us both one. Now both, who's both? Well, both must be you Gentiles and us circumcision. He's made us both one. So how many are there now? One. Oh, okay. And has broken down... In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. So there was some kind of dividing wall of hostility. And, you know, it's no mystery to anyone that there's hostility between Gentiles and Jews. long-standing, everlasting, it seems, even to this day. But that wall has been, the wall that makes that division has been broken down. What was that? How did he do that? By abolishing the law. by abolishing the law. Well, we're going to have to figure out what that word abolishing means. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, there's no other possibility than in that expression he is referring to the whole law of Moses. The law that establishes Israel as a nation. The law that is uh, elaborated in the book of Deuteronomy. Apparently, it's been abolished. So, and apparently, it was the thing, the dividing wall, that generated the hostility, that kept us from being one, that divided us in two. And of course, it did. I just read it. It does. Okay, those commandments, that, that law is the law of Israel. It is the law given by Moses for the nation as the nation, the chosen people of God. Okay, so how do you do this? He, he abolished the law of commands, expression ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new man, in place of two. So, making peace. Making peace. That's the the word, uh, the poieo word that was in the word workmanship. And when it says he created one new man from the two, that's the created word from verse 10. We are his workmanship Created. This tells me that verse 10 is collective because this is undeniably collective. This is undeniably the making of the church, the new people of God, the new humanity in Christ. <clears throat> that, uh, that is what was already being hinted at in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ. And now he's saying how that worked because in the death of Christ we have the abolition of the law that divided us. And so he reconciles us into one new humanity in himself by the work of his cross. <clears throat> wow. Wow. So the Gentiles were alienated. Now in Christ they've been brought near. He made the two, he made, poieo, the make word, the workmanship word, the two into one by setting aside the law. Oh, I didn't say abolish there. I said set aside. The word abolish means to render inoperable. Now I'm, I'm starting to see how this works because Christ in his fulfillment of the law his fulfillment of the law fulfills the law so that the law is no longer necessary as law. And so he fulfills the law. He is absolutely the one person in all of history who has kept the law of God. Entirely his whole life with perfect righteousness. And when he dies, he's fulfilled the law. Because he has carried out the sentence of the law on the rest of us. So there's nothing left for the law to do in the death of Christ. The, the law is complete. It's served its function completely. It has elaborated to us the the righteous standards of God so that we know we're condemned and we need some other kind of help and he has provided the help. He himself has, in our place, in the federal headship of Christ, he has lived out the exact righteousness that we should have lived out and in his death, he's fulfilled our sentence. So the law, what's it for now? It's, well, here's how we can use it now. It tells us the righteous standard of God, which now we suddenly want to fulfill. So now we're ready to obey it in the spirit and so on, which we'll carry on to. But the, So it, it can be useful to us, but it's not law to us. It does tell us what pleases God, what God wants done. If we don't do it, we're disobeying Him. And if we do do it, we are obeying Him. But it's not law. Because there's no condemnation left for us. Because He's already taken it all for us. Well, so the law is rendered inoperable. He's, He's... Set it aside, and that's actually a good literal translation of the word here, set aside. His fulfillment of the law renders it inoperative as law. And in doing that, he created one new man, because now there's, no, there's nothing that distinguishes Israel from everyone else. Israel has served the purpose of Israel. Because the purpose of Israel is in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I will make you a great nation. And from that nation I will bless all the nations. And in Christ that promise is kept. And so the purpose of the nation of Abraham. The Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation of Israel. Is fulfilled in the arrival of Messiah. Now this, nobody really knew, understood all this. When it was happening. or that would have probably kept it from happening. Well, he's now creating one new man in the place of two. So making peace, wholeness, unity, shalom, reconciling. Now, here's the kicker. Um, He himself is our peace who made us both one, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God. Do you see the next phrase? In one body. I remember I was in seminary studying this text, you know, for homework. I was with John Keeber. we were like sitting, both studying this text, and uh, sitting there in the room in our little office and uh, studying this text when this suddenly dawned on both of us at the same time. It's like an experience. I'll never forget it. It's like, blam! He reconciled us to God in one body. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just reconciling me to God, you to God, him to God. He was reconciling the church to God. As the church. <laughs> Do you realize there is no atonement that doesn't put you in the church? Because you, you're you not atoned for except as a part of the church. I'm sorry, that was mind-blowing to me. That's like my little individualistic mindset reading of the book of Ephesians just was obliterated. And I had to start thinking, oh, the scripture belongs to us, not me. And this text is about us, not me. I'm in us, but it's about us. Reconciling us both to God, our union with Christ in the work of the cross is collective. In fact, in this text, our union with one another happens first. In the work of the cross. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you're going to have to figure that out for a while. Our union with Christ in the work of the cross is collective. It includes our union with one another in the body of Christ. And the atonement, the reconciling work of Christ accomplished by the cross, is applied to the church, not just the individual. So Paul's conclusion in this is, so you Gentiles, no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens members of God's household there's a family here a family here what was the point of all this well now you are a part of the covenanted community that ends up being the the punchline at the end of all this sentence you're not alienated anymore you're one of us and then he goes on he says you're being built together you also that is you along with all believers Gentiles and Jews are being built together you plural being built together into a dwelling place singular for God by the spirit now are being built together that's a present tense verb that's happening as we get, as we speak we are being built together now he goes on in chapter 3 to tell us that this is the mystery the mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs who who knew it's in there but it's really not that visible Uh, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's the mystery that is now revealed in this apostolic prophecy. The mystery that there's one all nations people of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 10. uh, we, We find another purpose statement. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. I mean, these statements, the church is the fullness of God. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. These are over our heads. These are magnificent things. Hard to even imagine the greatness of this calling so that through the church the manifold wisdom of god might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so god is showing off his the intricate details of his great wisdom to the angels and demons i suppose In the church. The church has this heavenly audience. (laughs) And this is part of God's purpose. In making the church. Wow. And he says in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose. That he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him well that ought to remind you the book of hebrews we come boldly before the throne of grace where christ ever lives to intercede for us so if god ever looked sideways at you and said what are you doing here jesus says oh he's with me oh okay uh and, of course, God never does that because he's fully aware of these things. But the, we have access, confident access, to God himself, God Almighty at any time. I've come to this conviction that uh, prayer is the entire Christian life. All there is to the Christian life is prayer. Prayer. why on earth would you stop to do anything else you have access to the living God whatever it is you're praying for is nowhere near as important as that but you know God knows we're children he happily receives us he enjoys chatting with us about even the most trivial dumb stuff that we we think is important Some of you have children, so you know what that's like. (laughs) eternal purpose realized in Christ to give us access. And that, of course, is what we read about in chapter one, that eternal purpose that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we end up in chapter one, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we end up there here, too. This is how He did it. The work of the cross. The work of the cross that forms one new man and reconciles that one new man to God in Christ by the Spirit. The thing that uh, now makes us the people of God is in Christ, not in Israel. there was a time when in Israel made you the people made you one of the people of God and now it's in Christ and good for us cuz i think we're all gentiles where that used to be alienated alienated in adam we're all every human human being is alienated from god Israel was kind of a half step back and now one new man in Christ the nature of the Christian life is a is realized in the church maybe I should say is to be realized in the church not just in each of us. And next time we're going to talk about uh, the <clears throat> this prayer of Paul that begins to relate the each of us to the one new man. Uh, and we're going to talk about how the fullness of God comes to operate in us. The image-bearing church. What's Paul's prayer for this church? I have a, a way of thinking about this. It's like this. We find Paul in the New Testament in various places, or Jesus even, or any of the other apostles, elaborating what they're praying for, for us, in the inspired scripture. Well, whatever that is they're praying for must be something we really need. And it must be something we receive from God, not something that we can do ourselves. So next time, we're going to see how this plays into the prayer of Paul. And in this prayer is the heart of the book of Ephesians, the heart of it. And so we're going to look at that after lunch, I think. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, stand in amazement before you that we can't even stand before you is amazing. We thank you for making us whole. Making us whole in the body of Christ and restoring us to right fellowship with you by the work of the cross of Christ, by that mighty power that raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, that in our union with him even now, we are raised and seated with him in that place. And Lord, these things are astounding and glorious. Help us, Lord, to... Understand them to trust in the Word of God, and to act from there. We thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, let's all stand.